What does the Bible say about Hebrews' Israeli people? Do they need to accept Christ? Or does the term chosen ones imply that they are forgiven anyway? It's this week's cross-culture Q&A question. The answer, right after Crosswalk. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how insignificant you may feel your place in life is. God can use you whenever and wherever you are if you just show up, if you just report for duty. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. How many times have you or I at some point in our life said, I just don't understand why God just doesn't deal with that one right there. I just don't understand why lightning doesn't come out of the sky and strike them dead on the spot. But by and large, the final judgment of God is being delayed. This age of grace is still going on. God is still giving people time to come to Him. God's grace. Is there anything sweeter to think about? Most of us have heard many sermons on the topic of God's grace, His love and mercy. But the Bible says that the age of grace is going to run out and His judgment is going to come on this earth and its inhabitants. He's been patient with mankind. He's been waiting for men and women to acknowledge Him and come to Him. But when the seventh trumpet sounds, God is going to begin to wrap this thing up. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today in our year-long study entitled The Revelation, we come to the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments found in Revelation chapter 10. The previous judgments have been devastating. But as we've mentioned before, they've also been an opportunity for men and women to recognize their sinfulness and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, today, Pastor Clay takes us through Revelation chapter 10 and introduces us to someone who brings a message that will change everything. We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues. If you've been with us through most of this study, you may remember that there was an an interlude, a pause, between the sixth seal judgment and the seventh seal judgment. Remember, just let me say this to you real quick. Three sets of judgments described in the book of Revelation. Seal judgments, then trumpet judgments, then bold judgments, which we've not gotten to yet. There was an interlude. There was a pause between the sixth seal judgment and the seventh seal judgment. We find that in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. Today, as we come to Revelation chapter 10, having just looked at the sixth trumpet judgment last week, we discover a similar interlude, a similar pause. Chapter 10 is to the trumpet judgments what chapter 7 was to the seal judgments. You with me? Really, the interlude not only covers all of chapter 10, but a good part of chapter 11, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 11, before the seventh trumpet judgment comes. And we'll we'll look at that in a a couple of, of weeks. But there's a pause, there's an interlude before the coming of the seventh trumpet judgment. And we're going to read about that today in Revelation chapter 10. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you, uh, go ahead and open there to Revelation chapter 10. And if you didn't, uh, the text will also be up on the screen. Hey, why don't you just uh, take 10 seconds and turn to somebody beside you and, and just say, how you doing, or I care about you, or I love you, or, or nice to meet you, or whatever. Why don't you just do that right now? Good to have you here, or what are we having for lunch, or 
Revelation chapter 10, and I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning. And I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. Remember, we talked about the book basically means a scroll. There weren't books like we have today, but it's referring to a scroll. He had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again, speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, My stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Just to remind you, uh, as we we dive into Revelation chapter 10 today, uh, John, the Apostle John, is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. He is an aged man by the time he writes this, uh, towards the latter end of his life. He is, at the time of this writing, he is literally, physically, on the island of Patmos. Uh, He has been exiled, or he's been placed there, basically as a prison. He's been placed there because of the, as the text says at the beginning, because of his testimony and the word of Jesus Christ. Because he was going about sharing the message that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the way to heaven. Uh, he had been locked up by the Roman officials. When I say locked up, he had been placed on this, this basically deserted island in hopes that if we get him away from everybody else, then he won't be able to have an influence anymore, uh, which is probably just a great opportunity to say it doesn't matter where you are, doesn't matter how insignificant you may feel your place in life is, God can use you whenever and wherever you are if, you're, if, you, just, if you just show up, if you just report for duty. And so John's on the island of Patmos physically, and he's writing this. But God is delivering to John some type of vision, some type of spiritual vision in which he 
uh, is seeing these events that God that is describing to him, that Christ is describing to him, that will, that will take place. And part of that was the church and the church age, and we talked about all that. And then now into these judgments and moving towards the, the latter end of, of the history of man, uh, John is seeing those things in a vision. He started out on earth, and then in chapter 4, he was called up to heaven to see some things up there. And he's been kind of back and forth. Last week when we left him in, in chapter 9, he was in heaven. Now, as we are introduced to the story, as the story continues in chapter 10, we find that John is apparently back on earth again in his vision, all right? He's been on the island of Patmos the whole time, you understand what I'm saying? But he's back and forth in his vision. Now he's back on earth again. We know that he's back on earth because John says that he saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. So the, the implication is, is that he's looking up towards heaven and he sees this strong angel coming down. Because of the description of this strong angel that I just read to you a moment ago, because of that description, some people have concluded that this strong angel is actually, in fact, Jesus Christ. And there are some similarities between the description that is given here and a description that is given about Christ in the early part of the book of Revelation. Uh, he, he, is, he is clothed with clouds, meaning that, that he's surrounded by the clouds or he's in the clouds as John sees him, he's coming down and there's clouds all around him. There's a rainbow above his head, which is often associated with God. His face is shining like the sun, and his feet are like pillars of of fire. That sounds similar to a description given of Christ early in the book of Revelation. Most conservative biblical scholars, however, believe that this is not Christ, that this strong angel is, in fact, an angelic being. That that he is, that is an angel, an actual angel, a messenger of God. For various reasons they believe that. But for one thing, John uses this phrase. He says, I saw another strong angel. Which usually implies that this angel I'm seeing looks like some others that I have seen. And, and we know that John has been intricately involved in angels. And they've been speaking to John and working with him through all of this. Um, and so when he says, I saw another strong angel, the implication is I, I've seen one like him before. Also, in verse 5 and 6, and we'll get to that in a a few moments, in verse 5 and 6, this angel uh, raises his right hand and swears an oath by the name of God. It's really who he's talking about, and that's that's pretty clear. Uh, So that would imply that this is somebody that's not God, but that's that's taking an oath by the name of God. Now, there are a couple of places in Scripture where God swears by his own name, but, but it, it's quite clear that it is God. He says that it's him, and he says that he's swearing by that name because there is no other name uh, as greater than, than he. But here, there's, there's no indication that this is God. God. He doesn't say that it's God. And the implication seems to be that this is a, an angelic being, a strong angel, who's speaking um, under the authority of God. And it says in, um, in verse uh, 2 that he had in his hand a little book, which was open. We'll talk about that also in a few moments. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. This vision of this angel that John sees, clearly this strong angel is very strong or powerful. You can think of it in in those terms. And he is immense. In his vision, he is is immense. He, He comes down to earth and he places one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. And the text says, well, let me just say this, he's got this one foot on the sea and one foot on the land, 
seems to be symbolizing that, that this strong angel has authority over, over all the earth. And that his message is, is for all the earth. It's the, the sea, the land, it's all covered by this, this strong angel and this, this message that he's bringing. And the text says that he speaks with a voice like, how does it put it? Um, he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. I have been on the plains of Africa and I have heard lions roar. And I can tell you this, when a lion roars on the plains of Africa, everybody and everything sits up and takes notice. Every animal, every person sits up and takes notice when a lion roars, which seems to be the point in in this opening vision that we're seeing here. The angel comes down, he is immense, his message is for the entire earth, he speaks with the voice of, of the roar of a lion, and the implication is that the whole world needs to sit up and take notice of this message that he's about to proclaim. That, 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 that the world needs to hear this message that this strong angel is going to deliver. Cried out with a loud voice with a lion. And, and, and the text says right at the end of chapter 3 and then, then goes into chapter, uh, right at the end of verse 3 and goes into verse 4, it says that, that when he had cried out, it says, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, we're not given any explanation as to what these seven peals of thunder are. Apparently, whatever John hears has the, the, the boom or the volume or the authority or something that sounds like thunder. But it is audible, intelligible words. These seven peals of thunder, whatever they are, apparently speak a message to John. And when John hears it, he, he, he says he gets out his pen and his paper or whatever, and he gets ready, he's about to write down what these seven peals of thunder just said. And he hears this voice that says, seal it up, seal up the book. Basically saying, stop, do not write what the seven peals of thunder have just said. Now that is unusual in the book of Revelation especially. Because early on in the book of Revelation, John is, said, uh, John is told to write down everything that he sees, write down the things that he sees and the things that he hears. But here he's told not to write it down because apparently whatever those seven peals of thunder, whatever their message was, whatever it was that they said, it was intended only for John to hear. And so perhaps you and I should just learn to live with that. To be able to learn with, to, to live with the fact that we just don't know what that is and we need to leave it there. Maybe the lesson for us is, if nothing else, maybe the lesson is, you know what? God's not obligated to answer every question you have. God's not obligated to tell you everything that you think you want to know. He's God. You're not. We live in an age, and, and, and I know people that that think they have to have every question answered before they will come to believe or trust in God. Oh, i got to have all, i got to know all this certain. i got to know all of these answers. And let me just say this. If you're here and you happen to be one of those persons, it's never going to happen. I, I hate to, to burst your bubble if that's what you're waiting on, but it's never going to happen. God is not obligated to answer every single question that you or I have. As I told the, uh, the atheist group at, in Chapel Hill a couple of months ago, uh, one of the things I, I said was, God's not trying to prove himself to anybody. Now, they seemed a little surprised by that statement, at least that's how it appeared to me. 
But, but he's not. God's not trying to. How hard would it be for the all-powerful God to prove himself? I, I don't, that wouldn't be real tough. If God wanted to prove himself, he'd just do it. God's not trying. And I don't know if this is a revelation to you or not, but God's not trying to prove himself to you. He reveals himself through his creation, which is evidence of his existence. He is revealing himself. He reveals himself in our lives. When we, when we open ourselves to him and, and come to him and, and seek him out, he reveals himself to us. But God's not trying to prove himself to you or anybody else. He doesn't have to. He's God. And so whatever the seven peals of thunder say, we'll just have to wait to heaven to get in line. The, the, answer, the question answer line. It's going to be a long line anyway. What what'd they say? What they, I got a feeling it probably won't matter by the time we get there. Um, and then... Uh, following in verse 5, it says, Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. And, it, and he, he offers, he, he, he says, I swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it. In other words, this is as solemn a vow as this guy knows how to take. He does, you can't, you know, th- this is more than, oh, I, I swear on my, on my mother's grave or I swear on my children. Or, th- he is swearing by the name that is above all names. He is swearing by the creator God about what he's about to say. It's as solemn a vow as he could possibly take. And basically what he says is there's no more waiting. There's not going to be any more waiting. Now, I believe, and if someone has a King James translation here, you can look at it, but I believe the King James translation translates that, uh, that part of verse 6 as there will be time no longer. But quite honestly, that has led to some misunderstanding and some misinterpretation of this uh, text. Um, how, how many of you remember the old hymn, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder, I'll Be There? Some of you remember that? Every person over 40 remembers that. When, <laughs> When the roll, you know, when the roll is called up yonder. When, yeah, okay. Um, when, uh, oh, please, it gets worse. <laughs> you, remember, you, you remember that song? There's a line in, in that song. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. You remember that line? That line is based on this verse. It's based on a misinterpretation of this text. The angel isn't saying that time is going to be no more. The angel isn't saying that time is going to stop. As a matter of fact, we know at this point in the text there's still three and a half years to go in the tribulation period. We know that. We know that the thousand-year reign of Christ is still to follow that. So time is not going to stop. Time is not going to be no more. No. The Greek word is chronos, and it can and does mean time, but it also can mean delay. And both the New American Standard and the New International Version correctly interpret it that way. There shall be delay no longer. Well, okay. What does that have to do with the price of milk in France, Pastor? What does that have to do with anything? It reminds us. I know I've said this a number of times about these judgments, but it reminds us again that God has been delaying his final judgment upon this earth and upon the people of this earth. God has been delaying. How many times have you or I at some point in our life said, I just don't understand why God just doesn't deal with that one right there. 
I just don't understand why lightning doesn't come out of the sky and strike them dead on the spot. And, and I will say this. There are times in the sovereignty of God as he decides, there are times when God seems to act sometimes in certain situations as, as only he decides, and, and I'll leave that in his hands. But by and large, the final judgment of God has been, is being delayed. This age of grace in which you and I live in is still going on. God is still giving people time to come to him. Even during this, these judgments that we've been reading about in the tribulation period, even throughout them, God has been delaying his judgment on those who would still open up and receive him and come to him and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior and receive his forgiveness. He's been delaying that. But, as the text says, with this coming of this seventh angel, with the, with the coming of the seventh angel, meaning the seventh trumpet judgment angel. Remember, we've, we've been through six. Now we're in, we're in a bit of a space, a delay here in chapter 10. And the, and the angel's message is with the coming of the seventh angel and his message, when it sounds, when he blows his trumpet, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, listen, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. In other words, the, the angel is announcing that God has been delaying his judgment. He's been patient with mankind. He's been... He's been uh, waiting for men and women to acknowledge him and come to him, but there will be no more delay. When the seventh trumpet sounds, God is going to begin to wrap this thing up. And people may not have believed it. Pe- people may not have wanted to hear it. People may have even laughed at it. But God says, this is it. I'm bringing this thing to a close. I told, I've told it through my prophets through the years that there was going to come a time when I was going to wrap this thing up. I've been told it through my prophets that there's coming a time when I'm going to establish my justice and righteousness on this earth and that I will rule and reign. I've been saying it from the beginning. That time has come. That's what he says. The Apostle Peter kind of uh, delves into this area as well. In 2 Peter chapter 3, um, it says this. says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget. Look, they deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of, what's that word? Say it, judgment. When ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this, one thing, dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. Now listen, get a hold of this. He's not really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along 
On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful, godly lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Not in yours, not anybody else. Ultimately, in God's sight. And remember, here it is. The Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. That's this age of grace. That's this delay. From the very beginning, God said that someday he would establish his righteous rule. He would do away with the sinfulness of the world. He would judge sin as a righteous God does. And he will establish his kingdom. We've been living For 2,000 years now, we've been living in this age of grace. And as we get into the tribulation period, and as we come to to the end of the sixth trumpet judgment, and just before the coming of the seventh trumpet judgment, the strong angel comes and announces, with the coming, the announcement of the seventh trumpet judgment, no more delay. God is going to begin to wrap this thing up in a hurry. And then in the remainder of the the chapter, verse 8 to the end of the chapter, we read about this, this book that John originally mentioned in verse 2. We see this, this book. No explanation, no, nothing is given to us about what is in the book, I think, because no interpretation is needed. It seems fairly obvious that the little book contains the Word of God. It contains the revelation of God. It contains the message of God. And it's little because there's not much left to write. It's almost done. He's winding it up, which is the entire message that the strong angel came to deliver. There's just not much left to this, is what he's saying. This this thing's about to to wrap up. And we know, literally, time-wise, there's three and a half years from this point when it comes till the end of time. So John is told to take the book and eat it. And he's also told that it will will taste sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach. Now, to us, listen, I I understand. That that may sound a little strange. You know, what? Eat the book? What? (laughs) That's That's a little strange. But... But it's not strange to God. It's not strange if you're a student of God's Word. This is not the first time that God has, has told someone to, to eat His Word. Jeremiah ate God's Word. In Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16, he, he ate God's Word. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 3, we find these words. It says this, And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, son of man, go now to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. You get it? He's not not talking about physically eating the word of God. He's saying ingest it. Ingest the Word of God. Take the Word of God into your life so that you then are prepared to go out and tell or teach it to other people. That's what he was telling Jeremiah. That's what he's telling Ezekiel. And that's what he's telling John here, And which is why the chapter ends with, with John being told, now, go on out and tell them this message. It is to take in the Word of God and ingest it into our lives. And this little phrase, sweet as honey and, and bitter in your stomach, I think it's simply saying that that that's the Word of God. 
that it contains both sweet promises of redemption and, and, and eternity and, and forgiveness. And it also contains hard parts like judgment and, 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 and righteousness and, and hell and the need for repentance, things that, that are harder for people to accept. Hey, can I just say this? This particularly, this, this word to John really has spoken to my heart as I've been studying Revelation chapter 10 because as both a student and a teacher of God's word, which is what I am, I can identify with, with what John is told to do. I can tell you the, the, the grace of God, the mercy of God, His love, His forgiveness, His, His, His eternity, His heaven. Man, those things are sweet and I love to study them and I love to teach them to other people. I love to teach about the promises of God, the, the future that God has for His, for His children, the, the gift that God gave in Himself. Oh, I love to teach those things. I love to study those things and read those things. They are sweet to me as I take them in. But it brings me no pleasure whatsoever to have to stand before you or anybody else and say, God says this is wrong. God says what you're doing in your life is wrong. God says this is sin. God says this is not acceptable in his sight. That doesn't, that doesn't bring me any, any pleasure. It's, it, is, it is bitter in my soul to have to, to read and, and communicate to you that billions of people will die and go into a Christless eternity because they've rejected God. An eternity of, of torment and fear and darkness that brings no pleasure to me. I have lost friends. I have lost church members because I've had to stand before them and say, God says what you're doing is wrong. I, I understand this sweetness and bitterness stuff. But it's really the call on each one of our lives to take in his word that we would be prepared to tell others. It's coming, I promise you, as sure as I know anything in my life, as sure as anything exists, I promise you these events are coming to pass. And I say to you this morning that if you are here and you've never yet made up a decision, made a decision about a relationship with Jesus Christ or committing your life to him or following him, I say to you as solemnly as I can, you are playing Russian roulette with your eternal destiny. And over and over in this age of grace and over and over again in this book, God has given you and me and anybody else opportunities to respond and turn and come to Him. And even today, while we're still under the age of grace, any person could say, it's time for me to give my life to Jesus Christ. Like John, the Word of God is both sweet and bitter to us as well. The descriptions of heaven and the promises of what God has waiting for us are certainly pleasant food for thought. But at the same time, the righteousness of God will bring His judgment on those who refuse to acknowledge His lordship over their lives, and the consequences will be truly bitter. Praise God that those of us who have trusted Jesus as our Savior know that He is preparing a place for us. But as we've learned today, the age of grace is going to run out. As fully devoted followers of Jesus, we have to do all we can to share with those around us the great news of our Savior before it is eternally too late. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. 
Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. It's Q&A. It's time for Q&A. If you're a regular part of Cross Culture, you know that normally uh, each Sunday we take one question that someone's filled out a card uh, and the title is, what does the Bible say about? And people fill out anything goes if the Bible addresses it. As I've said before, we want to try and uh, address it. We've had a few weeks off because of different things we've had going on in the service that kind of cut into that uh, time. But today we're coming back to Q&A and uh, trying to deal with it. By the way, besides the card, there's also a a link on uh, on our website. You can click on, right on there and fill out a question, and it'll get to me also uh, that way. But the Q&A for today is this. What does the Bible say about Hebrews slash Israeli people? Do they need to accept Christ, or does the term chosen ones or chosen people, you may have heard, imply that they are forgiven anyway? Um, I, I came across this card, quite honestly, in my desk, and there was... I, got quite a few of them, and I think that one had kind of gotten misplaced. So I wasn't sure how long it had been there, and I thought, man, I, maybe I ought to deal with that if I haven't. If I already have, then act like y'all are hitting it for the very first time. Um, this is a good question because we do know that the Bible does make reference to the, to, the, to the people of Israel as being God's chosen people. And so this is a very practical question. What does that mean? Does that mean, you know, they're just in um, just because God chose them, or is there something more to that? The question is also good because it kind of gets to the whole idea about just other religions in general, other religions that don't, don't acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son of God, come in the flesh, died on the cross, rose again on the third day, ascended to heaven, and is returning again for, for uh, Buddhists or Islam or on and on, all the various religions of the world, it kind of addresses that whole question, you know, where, what, what is required? Well, why don't we just let the Bible speak for itself uh, this morning. In uh, John chapter 14 and verse 6, we find these words, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. It's a very exclusive claim. I didn't make it. I'm just, I'm just repeating it. Jesus said it, and it's an exclusive claim that he makes, um, the exclusive access to heaven and to the Father. Christ claimed uh, that he was it, which, by the way, is, is why um, C.S. Lewis, the famous Christian uh, 
scholar and apologist, one of the reasons why he made this famous phrase, he said Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. He, he was either crazy because he claimed to be God, or he was who he said he was. Um, also, another fairly familiar passage of Scripture, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit well in, in a society that has become very pluralistic, a society that says, uh, your way is fine, your way is for you, your, my way is my way, and their way is their way, and, and none of us have a right to say that any other way is, is, is right or wrong, and, and that's the way it ought to be. Well, God claimed that he made one way, and that way was through his son. Now, uh, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are a chosen people of God. God did enter into a special covenant relationship with them, and they were chosen for, and I just listed a few things here that I could think of. Abraham's descendants were chosen, number one, to show the grace of God to the world, to help them understand for the first time. Remember, God chose Abraham first, and and it wasn't anything Abraham did. God just chose him, and then Abraham responded in faith. But Abraham lived at a time when there's when most people and most people groups believe in a, in a plurality of gods and all this kind of thing, and, and the Jewish people were assigned the task of helping the world understand that there is one God, Jehovah God, and that, that we come to him in, in the, to this relationship through faith, which is what Abraham did, which is what every person down through the ages has done. Jew, non-Jew, it's always been about faith, not about our works we, sh- we should serve the Lord with gladness, but as a result of who he is and what he's done for us, not as a result of trying to earn some type of merit with him. So they were chosen to show the grace of God to the world and, and how that really worked. They were, showed th- they were chosen to record the words of God to the world, uh, that thing that, that you and I hold in our hand or uh, have in our homes called the Bible um, was recorded almost completely and totally by uh, Jew- people of Jewish heritage. God chose to use the nation of Israel and the people of Israel to bring his word to the world. And then third, they were chosen to bring the Savior into the world. Uh, Never forget that Jesus was himself bodily a Jew, that he came into a Jewish family, born uh, as a lion of the tribe of Judah, born uh, in uh, in Bethlehem. And and so so he is Jewish, and and, uh, you you should never forget that, that 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 was part of the, the task that they were chosen for, was to bring the Savior into the world. And interestingly enough, as we go on through this study of the book of Revelation, you'll see that, that as I've said all along, God's not through with the nation of Israel. It's, his covenant relationship still stands with them. But the bottom line is, Jew or Gentile makes no difference. All persons come to God through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And that's Q&A for today.